Here we are, episode four of Built for Better. Today I've got one of my really good mates, Jacob Smith, in for a yarn. Um, we're going to go through the Dakar experience mainly, and the highlight I want you to get out of it is mental toughness and determination. Before we get started, let's roll the intro. I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more. I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more wasted energy spending the pace for every hour of waste. I need an escape to center me. And I don't mean to make a rush for the door, but time's a currency. I'm currently poor. I'll be leaving it soon. I don't mean to be rude, but this scene ain't for me. Like your mom's seeing your nudes. I got places Here we are, mate. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me, mate. For second guest, Brenda was my first guest, two of my very best mates are my first two guests. Uh, I guess sitting here talking to your mate, it's not really like you're doing a podcast. What? Um, let's go back a little bit. Let's dive into Jacob Smith as a school kid. What were you like at school? Um, I reckon I was a pretty good kid. Didn't get into too much trouble. Um, later on in my schooling, I knew that I had it super easy because all I've ever done is race dirt bikes. So, um, yeah, man, my, from year 10 to year 12 was the years that I put pressure on myself to become a professional athlete. So went and seen the school and said this is what I want to do and did the bare minimum of of classes that I had to do so I had so much free time and I just knew that I was on a good wicket because every time that I wasn't at school like school holidays or anything on like that I was working so working with with mum and dad to help with my racing I guess pay for pay for my way so um yeah I knew I had it good and enjoyed every minute of it sometimes I wish I was back there to be honest don't we all when you say like you worked out you wanted to be a professional athlete and you cut back your studies, I guess, at school. What did you pick up extra to sort of put you on the path to be that professional athlete? Well, to be honest, I'd love to know what I know now back then. You know, I just thought that I was, you know, I was never really that great as a dirt but I mean, I had talent when I was a kid, I guess, but I never had a heap of natural talent and I just loved riding dirt bikes. It wasn't until, you know, I started racing when I was three and a half years old and it wasn't until I was probably 12, 13 that I actually started showing some real signs that I was, you know, a contender at state and national level. So, um, and then it was sort of a quick rise for me. I went from, you know, winning some state rounds to being state champ to being Australian champ all in the one year. And then, um, you know, my career sort of went on the rise from there. So sort of <clears throat> at school, I mean, I always trained. I started training, you know, by myself when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, just cycling that kind of thing so you know it was when I you know had less on at school you know I really didn't pick up the slack as much as I should you know it was um it was you know I just sort of floated through did the training I need to and and just relied on um you know my riding more than than training so yeah it's sort of going back I wish I knew what I knew now and we could make some differences but one of the big things is I ended up having year 12. I got halfway through year 12 and decided to have the rest of the year off and get some injuries fixed, have my knee done and uh, wrist surgery and that kind of thing. So it turned into a bit of a piss up for me in the end, really. So, um, you know, it didn't go the way that I planned, but it is what it is. When, How old were you when you won the state and national title? Uh, I was 14. So um, when I was 12 on an 85... I was leading the state championship and had my first broken bone off a trampoline 
and broke my wrist. So we were just messing around one night on a trampoline. I pretended I was going to do a backflip, got all messed up in the air and landed on my wrist and snapped it. And uh, yeah, and then I missed the missed the third round and didn't get my chance to win. And then <clears throat> most of my career, I've had to deal with a bloke called Toby Price. So winning championships was <laughs> was quite tough. Um, you know, I've had, we had a hot group all the way through. Uh, not just Toby, I had you know a lot of um, a lot of good talent in my group. So. When I was 13, I ran second to Toby in my in a state championship. And then when I was 14, I won my first title. So, um, and then went from that to winning my first national motocross championship in the same year. So, sort of went from winning some races here and there at that level to to being the champ, which was pretty cool. When did you first throw a leg over a motorbike? My first memory of actually riding a dirt bike, and I still, like I was pretty young. I reckon I was only like three. Um, riding around the backyard uh, sister was just holding the back of the bike pretty much and I was cruising around and what about races when and then ra- I had my first race when I was like three and a half so so you've got all the way through to your 12 and you're leading, yeah. a, you're leading a state championship and you break your wrist on a trampoline yeah. not from a mobile never um, my injury list when I was a kid was pretty good you know I, I had a few crashes here and there obviously but um, got through Injury free, and so I raced from three and a half every season until I was twelve before I had my first proper injury. And from winning that national title, did you get a little bit of help with motorbikes and stuff? Yeah, so basically, the junior Honda program was was the premier program for years, and it was what my dream was as a kid. You know, we used to go in the pits and go and watch. They had the big setup, all the tents and everything, and you know, all the trick looking bikes and and riders that I looked up to when I was a kid. So it was. Um, like a dream to be on that team and then all I ever dreamed about from you know maybe when I was seven or eight years old was to be Australian champ so won my title and then pretty much inked the deal that night at the presentation like handshake deal done contracts were signed probably till three weeks later Um, so it was going from I don't know how my parents done it to be honest paying for racing for both Todd and I all our lives you know, and I got help over the way with a bit of free gear and stuff and bikes on race plans and stuff, but you still had In the to scheme of things, though, like a couple oh, of sets of gear and that's no, nothing on the money you spend. Nothing at all. And then from that to um, from that to being the number one rider on that team and then, you know, free bikes, free gear, free tyres, oils, everything was paid for. Um, it was a pretty big change, but it was... Looking back on it now, it was um, it was one of the most learning years I've had too. You know, had to deal with pressure, team managers telling me that I had to win. Um, I was a bigger kid too, so like you know, taller and heavier than most of the guys. And and riding a one two five back then, I struggled against the other guys. So it was um, it was a big learning curve for my whole career, I reckon. And what results did you see when you went from, I guess, initially buying your own stuff to um, I guess getting stuff given to you but then also having that extra pressure put on you well looking back on it um, I probably you know I was super grateful for that for that deal but looking back on it now I actually got offered a deal um, to go to Suzuki at um, you know for that next season and the pathways that Suzuki put in place after juniors and and the program that was on offer was looking back on it now might have been a better deal but um you know i'd never been offered anything like that before and you'd be mad not to take it but in saying that 
you know, the results didn't really come as good as what I'd hoped. You know, the pressure to get phone calls from your manager saying you need to win this weekend because, you know, our other riders aren't performing is pretty tough when you're a 15-year-old kid and you just won a junior championship and then, you you know, you're, you're expected to win. I went from being a guy that loved to ride dirt bikes and if I was in the top five, top three, I was happy to... If I wasn't winning, then, you know, winning became everything for me. And then it was tough when you weren't doing it. So, um, you know, that season I had one of the worst weekends racing I've ever had. I was leading both championships on the 250 and the 1.25 going into the last round and then had an engine failure, the first moto on the 1.25. And then we tried to rebuild it, engine failure again the second race. And then I think I might have crashed out of the third one. I don't even know. But... um. Yeah, so I went from leading that championship to not even being on the podium. And then on the 250, I rode the whole moto with the choke out, thought something was wrong with the bike, and was leading the moto until I stalled it. Um, and then ended up third in that championship as well. So, yeah, it was it was a tough year and a good learning year for me. And then did you make the jump to seniors from there? Yeah, so I went, to, went back privateer from there um, into the seniors, and then it was... The first year that they had um, what they call, they called it National Cup back then, but it's basically the under-19 championship. So all the guys that I was racing, plus a few older guys, into a new class alongside the National Motocross Championship and um, went to Yamaha and rode privateer, basically, and missed out on the championship by one point. So got passed on the last lap of the last race for the championship so it was for Dale and myself for racing together and uh, he passed me on the on the last lap of the last moto to win the championship by point so um, you know two years in a row I ended up second in the national championship so it was two learning years that um, that sort of built me to where I am now I suppose but um, looking back on it it was that loss was the toughest that my first year of seniors and to miss a national title by a point was pretty hard yeah, and it was it from there that you sort of made the switch to the off-road? Well, yeah, it was more so the following year was my last year of juniors, uh, last year of school, sorry, and it was going to be my breakout year. It was like, if I'm going to make it as a full-time racer and not have to work, then while I'm still at school, I'll give it my best shot, um, which I probably put too much pressure on myself. Um, back then, they used to have a couple of rounds of Supercross at the start of the season, and then you went into Motocross Championship, and then I broke my wrist at the second round in WA so we driven to, to WA did the first round in Adelaide and did quite well I think I was top five or six in pro lights which was pretty cool and then um, and then I went to WA broke my wrist in practice tried to keep racing because we'd spent all this money to go there taped it up no good um, I remember my old man going there's nothing wrong with you just tape it up you'll be right I went back out for the heat race no good uh, went to the hospital and broke the ball off my wrist, basically, the outside bone. Um, and then the first round of motocross was the weekend after. So stayed on, taped it up, raced the next week, raced the next few rounds, and then just had another injury, broke my wrist again, and had like I've had bad knees all my life too. So we sort of decided to pull the pin and, um, and get my body fixed. And then that's when I sort of went to the off-road scene. I got the opportunity to race the condo 750 the following year uh won it my first crack and then yamaha put a team together for safari that year in 07 
I got the gig to to be, I always think I was number three on the team, actually. They had two um, US guys come out and race. Um, so we put a program together, did that, ended up coming second in my first one, and then that's the way it went. We started chasing the off-road team from there. I mean, like, looking back, any kid who's riding to racing dirt bikes, like, their dream is to get, I guess, a full-time gig as a, back, a factory motocross or supercross rider. Like, that was obviously your dream, and you got so close to doing it. Yeah. Looking back now... There's obviously lots of things you would have done different if you knew what you knew, like know now. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, it was always my dream to be motocross, supercross full time, and it's been my dream to race dirt bikes full time my whole life, and I've never quite got there. So, um, yeah, it's one of the things in my career that I wish I had the chance to do, especially because now racing against the guys that are full time, it's quite tough to be able to compete because they're doing it full time, getting paid to do it, but. Um, you know, like I, I just never quite got my chance. And then I was in line actually to, to probably be able to go full time before the GFC hit. So it was when there was quite big budgets, you know, riders were probably making 50 grand sign on with, with decent bonuses. And, you know, when you're 17 or 18 and making a thousand bucks a week and then bonuses on top, man, it would have been the dream, but yeah, it happened and then just kept chasing it from there. It's easy to even look back. Like one of my good friends, like, um, was just babysitting a kid that he's um, like a god godparent of now and he babysat the kid for like an hour and he rang his parents and he's like oh, I'm so sorry the kid cried for the whole hour but like I guess it's similar to you looking back now like if you had you know kids like yours and Todd's age like how would you support like you're oh. very thankful for your parents for what they've done I guess oh mate unbelievable I don't know how my parents done it because like just the financial costs. We like there was one or two seasons looking back. I think we raced like 35, 40 weekends out of the year. Some of those were just club days around here, but you still got to pay entry fees. Still got to put fuel on the bike. Um, you know, I didn't get my first brand new bike until I was thirteen, and you know, I'd been racing since I was, and I was fine with that. I wore hand-me-down clothes all the time, like. I got photos of me on a 50 where Todd had crashed and broke the peak of his helmet. He got a new helmet and I used to wear the one without the peak. <laughs> I raced years for that with that. So, um, I mean, they done it tough. I don't know how they did it, to be honest. But I'm glad they did. And then looking back on our experience, if you know, if I have a son that wants to, or a daughter that wants to race dirt bikes, then you know, it's going to be tough. But if they are good or they want to do it, then that's what we'll do. And I've got the... The knowledge i guess to know what to do and what not to do was it the wa trip i remember you telling me this story um when you were driving the car and you didn't have a license yeah <laughs> I, I did it quite a bit actually because you know obviously we'd you know we'd finish it was one of the rules that dad had that we had to go to school on monday because he'd drive home all night um he'd have to go to work we'd have to go to school so even you know later on down the track when i was like 14, 15, and I was still junior and Todd was senior, and we'd be going to separate races. So, Dad would be buggered, and I'd do the night shift and jump in and do some driving. And we'll go, we're in WA one time, and you only allowed to tow a trailer at 100Ks over there. But I didn't know, I just had it set on 110, and Dad's asleep. We had a station wagon, he's laying in the back of the station wagon. I'm cruising along, still had hair back then, had no hat on, and I'm sitting there, and we passed the highway patrol, and they flicked the lights on. I was like, Dad, cops. And he's like, what, what? And I was like, you've got to get in. So I jumped out of the driver's seat. He got his leg stuck on like the gear stick getting into the driver's seat. And by the time he got in and, and got it sorted, we're doing like 40 k's an hour on the wrong side of the road. 
wheeled it over, gets out, takes his hat off to take his jumper off, and like obviously bald hair. They knew straight away. <laughs> the cops all laughing. They go, "What's going on?" He goes, "Mate, I didn't know what you were pulling me over for. I was just cruising along at 110." And then he goes, well, "Didn't you know it's 100 over here?" You know, and he's like, "No, nah, I've never been to WA before." And uh, which is a lie. I used to do internationally, <laughs> like interstate. Went to um, Perth for three years, I think it was, in a truck every week. So got away with it. But and then, um, you know, I had a bit. I was a magnet to cops. I did it heaps. You know, like I'd get in the driver's seat and be driving for an hour and come across cops. You know, when I didn't have a license. But yeah, <laughs> looking back now, it's probably not something that you'd you'd do now, hey? Would you? Hell no. Yeah. Now I have a son and I'm, and he's 14 or 15 <laughs> and I jump in the back and go to sleep and let him do the night shift. Like sometimes it was 11, 12 at night, two in the morning, whatever. If he needed half an hour, an hour, I'd jump in and drive. And so some days you'd be racing in Queensland on a Sunday, yeah. finish racing straight back in the car all the way back to yeah, Condo. Yeah, like it was all the time. We'd finish racing in Adelaide, 10 hour drive. You know, you'd finish at four in the Arvo, five in the Arvo, drive all night, get home at five in the morning, he'd go to work, we'd go to school. Same as that, Queensland, like you'd finish racing at Conondale in four in the afternoon and you'd be five o'clock in the morning, you'd be driving in. I know, how, I know how much I appreciate my weekend now. I imagine Fabro is pretty pumped to be getting in the car every... Oh, man, and you can tell, like, towards the end, when we were doing that, if, if I... You know, not, I never got pressure from him at all in my whole career. He never really pushed me, but, you know, if I put in a bitch effort, he'd be like, you know. I remember we went to Tassie, you know, on the boat over there, me and him, and then I qualified 10th or something, and I wasn't really fit. It was the start of the season, and um, I got, like, three laps into the first moto, pumped up, went to shit, ran, like, 20th, and he just went, I'm not coming all the way over here. You ride <laughs> like an absolute woman. So yeah, I mean it was it was hard work, you know. He put in the effort too. So, what about um, let's fast forward back to senior career, making the switch to off road. Obviously, you and your brother Todd then got the opportunity to race together. Like, you obviously have a very good relationship. How was it? I guess racing with I guess your best mate. Well, I mean, I looked up to him a lot when I was a kid. Obviously, he was like he won three state championships in a row and against really good competition. You never got to win. A national title, but there's one you got uh, on him. Mate. That's one I've got. He's got a fink <laughs> on me, so I need to win that race badly. But um, I mean, it was awesome in the end. We got to race on the same team um, as teammates. We went one and two. I think there's two condo 750s. We went one and two. Two safaris. We've been one and two. We went one and two at Fink. Um, so we've done some pretty cool stuff together and travelled travelled the country racing dirt bikes with your brother and your best mates. Pretty awesome. And then we got to run a race team together. Um, so, I mean, when I look back on my career, sometimes I think that I've underachieved and there's things that I haven't done. But the older I get, the more content I am with my career. And you look back on things like that, where we got to run a race team and got to race everywhere with my brother. It was pretty cool. Yeah, let's, um, let's fast forward to Safari like we spoke about, your first Safari. How many Safaris did you end up doing? I did seven safaris, so um, I was 18 when I done my first one. So I was quite young when I started doing this type of racing. Um, normally, it's more of an older, older guy sport, but um, just the way it worked out for me that I got opportunity to do it. So raced my first one at 18 and ran second, and then raced the next seven in a row. So um, yeah, it was it was good time. Two safari wins, two safari runners up. Mm-hmm. 
let's uh, let's run through a typical, I guess, safari, just like a nice quick version. Obviously, na- navigational. You're reading a map while you're riding a bike at pretty high speed. Yeah, definitely. So then they were seven days. The first one I did was nine days, actually. We did um, like five and a half thousand Ks for the nine days. Um, and then they went back to seven days. So generally, it was around three to 4,000 Ks for the seven days. I mean, you, you're up, you're on the bike generally at 6.30 in the morning. You'd be in by you know, three or four o'clock in the Arvo, um, you know, all navigation, all through WA basically. So we did ones that started in Perth, finished in Kalgoorlie, that kind of thing, all the way up the coast. So, um, you know, a typical typical day on safari would be, you know, eight hours on the bike. You'd be doing anywhere from six to 800 Ks a day. Um, you know, definitely not, not easy, but they were fun times. And then obviously 750, kind of a smaller version than Safari. It's just a two-day navigational um, rally. And then most recently, Sun, Sunrise has been another navigational. Yeah, so the navigational rallies are, I mean, I like them most because you don't know where you're going. You just follow the map. And and um, even the ones in town, like obviously I know the area, but you still don't know exactly where you're going and it changes every year. So um that's what I like about the, the nav rallies and and um, I mean you know, it kind of combines two different skills. Like if you can ride a motorbike fast, but you can't read a map, you're not going to go any good in a navigate. Like you sort of need to be able to both together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then you've got to be able to look after your equipment. Um, you know, the, it's the whole deal. Work on your bike if you need to. Um, you know, obviously read the map and ride fast. So yeah, it's it's uh, a cool style of racing. That's for sure. Let's jump um, to think. Obviously, it's a race that like you're working really hard to win and obviously this year got very very close um what's i mean let's jump back to your first think to now what's been the biggest changes um so the first thing we done we rocked up as privateers we rode from town to the 20k bonnet and back and then we loaded the bikes up the next day and drove to the 100k marker and rode from there to the 140 and back and did the race blind and uh, Todd ran eighth, I ran twelfth, and then that opened the door for me to get a gig the following year with Rumi at Desert Edge with Honda. Um, and then I ran fourth the next year, and Todd got second. So pretty quickly we went from not even knowing anything about Fink, just following it, to being contenders, I guess. And then Fink's been a, um, you know, we've been doing it for I think that was my tenth Fink in a row um, this year. So. You know, just the pre-running involved and the and the development of the bikes and just the up and down results for me and the and the I guess the the um, bad luck I, you could say I've had and then just the work that goes into that race physically, mentally, bike setup. Um, it, it's definitely next level. That's let's, for sure. Let's touch on the track quickly. Like it's a two hundred and twenty k race. Two twenty each way, uh, or nearly two thirty. Um, it's so hard to. For people that just say, oh, you ride a dirt bike, you don't have to be that fit. It's just, they just don't understand. Like, Fink is so brutal. You're doing, you average 110 k's an hour with two fuel stops. So most of the time you're doing, you know, anywhere from 140 to 170 k's an hour. The track is super chopped out because they run, you know, 150 cars down it beforehand. Um, And then plus all the pre-running before. And then there's, you know, sections of whoops that are, can be, you know, like, anywhere from a metre to two metres deep to three metres apart, and we're doing 140, 150 through it. It's like doing a, a squat for 
you know, 30 k's non-stop. You don't sit down, you're just standing there. It's like you're getting knifed in the back, your legs are on fire. And then you sit down and you're doing 170 across little choppy pumps where it's like you're getting bashed in your back with a sledgehammer. So, I mean, it is it is the ultimate desert race in Australia and that's why, you know, it would be the best thing to win. And I mean, some top dogs have come out from America to give it a nudge and yeah. they've struggled no, to go I mean, top it, 10, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. It's just... It's such a different race to anywhere in the world that you can't, and you can't train for it anywhere. Like you've got to ride that track to be able to prepare your body and prepare yourself. That's why pre-running is so crucial. And it's something that, you know, both Todd and I have been able to do the least, like of the top guys, we do the least amount of pre-running by far. And it's just because work and money and budgets and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, it's, you can't just show up and race that race without, pre-running and putting the time in and it doesn't matter who you are you know like it's it just wouldn't work so i mean i've been up there and seen it and like you watch all the videos and it just doesn't know justice to what it's really like like to i mean the size of the whoops and and whatnot yeah um like it's got to be seen to be believed i guess let's um let's touch on i guess this year i guess it was the most i mean focused probably the best shape you've ever been in and then you're up pre-running prior to the race how how many weeks prior it was uh, seven weeks i think have yeah. a crash what sort of injuries we're talking and i broke five ribs punctured a lung uh and broke my shoulder blade in two spots so um you know i've, I've definitely put a lot of work into think over the years but this year was the most like focused and i mean obviously with your help too in the last two years we've been the most prepared that i've ever been um and then to have an injury like that I don't know it was sort of I, I like it wasn't all bad you know what I mean like I was super fit the bike was good um, it sort of took away a little bit of pressure at the time it was weird because I was spitting up blood on the side of the track I'm 140 cash in town we didn't have a sat phone or anything we just had the service unit that we were with and I'm laying on the side of the track spitting up blood and straight away I went I'm a chance of winning this race like it was weird um and I knew that I was gonna be there no matter what. Got to the hospital and I was like, straight up, first thing I asked them was, what date's the race and how many weeks have I got? And they were like, it's you know the 10th or whatever of June. And I got straight on my phone and went, all right, I got seven weeks from now until race week and 100% I'll be there, so. I remember actually ringing you up and having a good chat and I was like, so that means <clears throat> like this year's done and you're like, no way. No, I'm gonna no. make it happen. Hell no, and that's I mean, it was straight up, like right from the start. I knew that I was gonna ride. I was like, well, I've got no choice but to do what I've got to do to make it happen. And I mean, we we put a lot of work into rehab and all of that kind of thing to make it work too. So, so I guess more than ever, like as you get as you feel like you're getting older, like you felt like this was your year. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I've sort of felt that the last two seasons, basically. Um, we put a lot of work in especially working in the gym with you, getting myself physically fit. And I wish that I know, I knew now, you know, back then, because, you know, I've had a few wasted seasons, I guess. Not that I ever didn't put the work in, but especially with Rhiannon and her knowledge of of nutrition and how well she looks after me from behind the scenes. And then the work that we do in the gym, I felt like I was the most ready that I've been. Um, And then on good equipment too, even both years, like I felt like on the Honda that I was a chance of winning. Um, 
even when Toby was there, I felt like I had something for him. And then this year on the Husky, that thing was just so easy to ride, so fast and reliable. And then I knew that I was right physically and mentally to, to make it happen. So, um, you know, it's, I wish I could go back a few years and put the same amount of effort and, and know what I know now, but I can't. And that's why we're just going to keep working hard until we, until we win this thing. Yeah, 100%. And I guess, like, well, for me, like, seeing you get back to town and, like, you know, broken ribs, broken shoulder, and you're straight back into the gym, obviously there's not a hell of a lot you can do with them injuries, but you're still super determined, you know, to keep that fitness and, you know, hang on to what you could. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I, I guess that's that's part of the mental game in this whole process is, like, straight up, I was I never had any doubt that I was going to get back. And you got to do what you can to, like... To make it work and there's you can either just i could have just sat in the lounge and went now i'm done and gave it the flick or you know you get to the gym and do what you got to do a bit of pain never really hurt anyone that's one thing that i've done my whole career i guess is dealt with injury and that kind of thing and um and you just got to do what you got to do and make it happen yeah like i'd had um my eyes on these new concept bike ergs and as soon as you got hurt and i've been trying to get one, one past melissa for a little while Anyway, I said, Melissa, I've got to get one of these bikes because, you know, Jake can't use this, he can't use that. And, <laughs> like, we've got to, we want to win this race. Anyways, uh, she thought I was ordering one, but I snuck two in before she realised. <laughs> thought it wouldn't be near as fun if I wasn't sitting next to you. Oh, 100%, yeah. And, I like, man, it was, it's been, like, that kind of thing, getting that sort of support from your trainer is unreal. And I'm going in there early Saturday mornings doing Fink simulations, like, in my mind process and where i am on the track the parts of the track that are more fatiguing that others would, would make me go harder on that bike sitting on that thing for two hours with you know the broken shoulder blade and and the ribs and everything um but it definitely helped and you know i i was actually got through this year's race probably the best i have out of any of them and i had seven weeks off the bike before then, so yeah did you ride a bike from Did, your crash to race day no nah. Didn't even didn't even put a leg over one. I um I knew, I probably could have rode a week or two earlier than I did, but I just didn't want to take the chance. I thought I need to give my body the most time, and you don't forget how to ride a dirt bike in seven weeks. And I, in the past, that probably would have messed with me mentally, but I knew that I had a good setup. I knew that I'd done the work in the gym, and I just left it to right to the end. So I didn't ride a bike until from when I crashed to when I got back there um, on the Sunday was the first time I hopped on a bike and I rode Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, just did 160Ks each day and then showed up the prologue and got it done. Yeah, what sort of percentage would you rate you were at on race day? Um, oh, you know, it would have been probably 80, 85%, I guess. Um, but, well, like when there's no line, when I got to think I was toasted just because I hadn't been on the bike, but... I mean, if I hadn't done the work in the gym and all the work that we'd done, I probably wouldn't have been out of podium. But um, it was, yeah, I was wrecked. But that was just purely because I didn't spend enough time on the bike beforehand. Let's, um, you mentioned a little bit, but you said dealing with injuries. Let's run through or run through the injuries that you've dealt with. Obviously, you got to 12 and you'd had no injuries. Yeah, well, actually, like the biggest one that I've dealt with my whole career that I've never really... You know, sort of spoke about. It. I didn't really do enough with it as I was younger with my knees. So, I was born with my kneecaps not in the right position, basically. Um, so, 
I mean, your kneecap runs in a groove in your knee, and mine was sort of off to the the left and the right on each leg. So, from when I was about eleven or twelve, my kneecaps used to dislocate, so I couldn't run. I was used to play footy, um, and that's where I first come across it. And then I've dealt with that my whole career. Um, so that sort of where I started with dealing with injury and pain with riding, because I'd be halfway through a moto and put my leg out, my knee'd pop out, like my kneecap would dislocate and then go back in. And the pain you get is horrendous, like for the first probably 30 seconds or a minute, it's horrible. Um, and then swelling, like it was, mum used to work at the uh, medical center and then Dr. Gindy, I was a regular on a Monday, rock in there with my knee, he'd be fat as, he'd just go, oh, let's drain it again. And wouldn't be uncommon to get two big, you know, things of whatever they are, like the syringes full. Um, but yeah, so dealing with those to start with, and then I've had like, four or five wrists, um, broke the humerus right off at my shoulder, broke my shoulder blade twice, uh, broke my leg really bad, broken ribs, collarbone, all the typical injuries you get when you ride dirt bike. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any dirt bike rider that hasn't had an injury of some sort. And when you've been racing for 28 years, it's just inevitable that you're gonna have some kind of injury, but um, yeah, well, I've had you, to have to deal with a fair few, I guess. Yours kind of came all in a sort of short time period there at one point, yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, a couple of wrists pretty quick. And then um, the worst one would probably be my leg. When I broke my leg really bad, um, collarbone and ribs. And that was another one. It was six weeks before um, the safari in 2008. And I remember thinking I'm still going to race. Um, got through it, got to the start of the race, went 15 k's or something into the first special and crashed and landed on the same collarbone and like sort of half rebroke it and the same ribs and then had to race the whole race injured. So yeah, yeah it's been tough. Definitely see that that mental toughness as like rubs off in the gym, breaking like I guess somewhat injuring again and then riding another. What was it? Five thousand k's of safari. Yeah. One thing we like didn't even touch on of the whole career was your Dakar. Yeah. It, how it, did I guess how did that come about? And let's talk about some of the challenges with racing Dakar. Let's. What is Dakar for those who don't know to start? Dakar is probably it is the ultimate test of man and machine in dirt bikes. Like it's the biggest race in the world, really biggest off road race in the world, and. You know, Toby's won it twice now and he's sort of put it on the map with Australians uh, for people that know, you know, like I get a lot of people say to me, you know, what did you ride dirt bikes? Yeah, you know, and they know nothing about it. And then you mentioned Dakar and they're like, oh yeah, I've seen that on TV. So, I mean, I got my opportunity when I was super young, I guess. I was 20, just turned 22 before the start and it came through GHR Honda. Um, So got my gig with them in 2009, uh, won my first safari in 09. 2010 went in with the number one plate. Um, and then before the rally had even started, we basically done the deal to go to Dakar. Hoffman wanted to put in a an Australian team. Um, we had some guys that were rentals that were paying to go that were on the team. And then um, he basically funded me. So I basically got a full funded ride to Dakar. and. You know, Dakar was something that I'd looked at on the telly or watched on the telly as a kid, but never thought I'd be there. And what's a what's a rough D 
Dakar cost for those who are oh, mate, minimum 80 grand you know if you're going to go and pay for a Dakar now like if you wanted to 100 grand basically to do it properly uh, so it's big bucks and uh, you know I'd never been overseas before and you know I'd turned 22 over there I flew over before Christmas so I'd never been overseas left the family and everybody here I went over and had Christmas in Buenos Aires and uh, New Year's Day 2011 I was uh, I was at Dakar so it was um, it was a pretty surreal experience but it was life changing 14 days was it? yeah we did 14 days so we did the round trip so left Buenos Aires uh, and through Argentina over the Andes into Chile for 5 days I think back over the Andes and back in and Man, I was so underprepared, like just, you know, you're in a different country, never been there before. Was there a language barrier? Language barrier, the maps are in French, I did bugger all, study before that, um, you know, learning the maps and that kind of thing. So hang on, you're riding a motorbike at top speeds trying to read a map that's in French? All the abbreviations are in French, um, so there was a lot to learn, like it was, it was an eye-opener, but I mean, I was going there initially to... I wanted to do well, like I wanted to win a stage, I wanted to, um, you know, to finish in the top 10, I had big aspirations and I felt like, I mean, I definitely had the speed to do it, but um, it just, right from the start, you know, we we did 100, uh, we did 370 k's in the afternoon, they had the big start in, in the city, run through the city and there's just people everywhere, it was unbelievable, like, we'd get mobbed at the tolls, so you have, they have tollways all the way, up their highways and you'd pull up to pay toll it'd be like you know, five cents Australian or something and there'd be people stopping in the middle of the highway like a six lane highway to get out of their car to come over and get photos it was like unbelievable experience but right from the start you know I did 370 k's the first afternoon got into the bivouac at, which is the overnight stop at 9.30 at night by the time I got all my stuff sorted it was 12 o'clock and I had to get up at 3 so I slept fully closed like took my knee braces off had my skins and everything on like all my gear pretty much sitting there laid down for three hours got back up got dressed did 580 k's to the start before i'd even started racing before i even done my first stage of dakar so it was a pretty big initiation and then um i didn't i sort of dawdle, i didn't dawdle but you know the times were pretty tight for that first stage and i was 10 minutes late or something so if i had have been on time to the start of that first stage and my actual time for the stage i think it would have put me fourth or fifth for the stage and that could have set my whole race up totally different. But that was the first mistake I made in a whole bunch of mistakes that we had, um, you know, right from going over the Andes, which is 5,000 metres above sea level, no oxygen, freezing cold. I was like, oh, it's just a mountain, you know, you just go up and over it. I put a hoodie on underneath my jacket and wore motocross gloves. And you're winding up the Australia, it takes like, you know, 45 minutes an hour to get to the top and you get up there and it's 250 k's across the top of this mountain it was probably the hardest three or four hours of my life like dealing it felt like i had frostbite in my hands i had to stop every 10 k's to hold the exhaust to warm my hands up it was that cold got to a servo no oxygen struggling to breathe had to push my bike maybe 20 meters to the bowser and like nearly passed out and then I thought I better have something to eat. So I had a chocolate, like a bar in my backpack. Sat down to eat that. It was that chewy because it was so cold that I nearly passed out because I was just chewing on that. Like, 
and that was only day four, I think, out of a fourteen day rally. So it was um it was an experience to say the least. So while you've got your hoodie and your um just normal gloves on, what's everyone else prepared in? Oh, everyone's got full snow gear, like full wind jackets, face masks, like the whole full kit. The um there's blokes that had like that they have at the snow where you put the um the things around your your handlebars so your hands slide into them so they keep them warm. Yeah, and he's the old Aussie cruising up the thing in his normal jacket with a hoodie, <laughs> put a hoodie on underneath with a pair of motocross gloves, man. It was dead set the longest three or four hours of my life. It was it was pretty bad. If you could sum up your Dakar experience, I guess learning would be Oh, it was a learning curve. Like we had a lot of issues with the bike and that as well and you know, I got a four-hour penalty because my team went to the start of a stage that they weren't meant to, and I was the only rider left, so I got a four-hour penalty. Um, even down to the last day, like I started 10th on the last day, finally got myself up to a good spot and crashed. I had a French guy come up to me and say, uh, I am racing for position. You know, you get out of my way when I catch you. And I was like, man, if you catch me, I'll let you pass. I was like, there's no way you're going to pass me anyway. And I went like 4Ks in, crashed, put a, a tire lever through my radiator lost like another hour and a half and it was like a miracle i made it it was um looking back on it now it was a pretty awesome experience but at the time it was like this is the hardest thing i've ever had to do in my life and i guess haven't yet got the chance to go back does that is that on the agenda or kind of been there done it like for a lot of years i really really wanted to go back and and hoffman went back in 2013 and he took todd instead of me and that uh, like I was happy for Todd at the time and was that like he chose to take Todd instead yeah, pretty much I mean at the time there was the free entry on offer because Todd hadn't been and the safari was part of um, like the, if you won that safari you got a free um, like if you were eligible and Todd was but um, his bike blew up the first day of safari so that sort of went down the drain but he'd already had to end it before that so yeah, Todd got that gig and, um, you know, I always said, I said to the guys when I was there, I need to, in, like, soak this up the best I can because if I never get to go back, I get to say that I've raced the Dakar and I'll finish one. Um, that's not to say that I don't want to go back and if the opportunity popped up, then I'd definitely uh, like, the, like the chance to do it and I think I'd be much better for it, but, um, I was, you know. I was doing some research on the Dakar before, before this chat and it rates... Um, with the Olympics and the Soccer World Cup as in TV ratings. So it's like probably a little bit underestimated in Australia compared to what it is like everywhere else oh, in the world. They, it streams live into into France now, I'm pretty sure. There was one day there that I stopped. I came across Helder Rodriguez. He was winning the stage. He was the factory Yamaha rider and ran out of fuel. And I was like, I'd had heaps of issues and, and I'd actually ran out of fuel earlier on in the rally and a guy stopped to give me fuel. So I thought I'll do the right thing. Um, stopped and, and gave him fuel and they landed a chopper and it, it streamed live all through Europe. So like I ended up on, you know, live TV. It made the, the coverage that came back here to Australia. So um, yeah, the TV coverage is huge and, and the amount of people that follow it is massive. And I mean, it's the ultimate race. Like, I mean, you've sure like had a good career. Like you look back on all the results, like Fink, Two Seconds, Safari, um, you've completed a Dakar. Um, seven fifty. Um, that's without any junior motocross, supercross stuff. Like, where do you go from now? You're thirty. Yeah, yeah thirty. Turn thirty one at the end of the year, and that's one of the things that I struggle with a lot. And um, you know, Rhiannon and I talk about it a bit, and she's been so good for it. Is I mean, you got to have some gratitude about 
where what I've got to do in my career and you know I never got to live my actual dream of being a full-time racer but you know I've got to race all around the world um you know I get to do it for free basically um and then you know the older I get the more content I am with my career you know I've got to do a lot of cool things and and won some cool races but there's just that think crown that I want and you know it's it's something that I'm willing to do what it takes you know physically mentally to to make it happen so um that's where my focus is as far as the racer goes and that's what um that's what my goal is before I I pull the pin on racing yeah let's um let's rewind a little bit let's get away from racing essential energy so that's how i guess we created our friendship we both started essential energy on the 7th of january um i don't even know what year. 2007 2007 that yep. is we both got an apprenticeship um as apprentice power line workers so we shoot off to um first days in parks together four weeks of tafe um and i guess over the four-year apprenticeship i like, created a pretty strong bond through that um one thing I wanted to touch on that I was thinking when I was writing up a few notes about this podcast is how, like, you're obviously a, like, semi-professional, professional racer and we think that we're doing the right thing for lunch and we're going to Subway uh-huh. or we'd be, um, you know, slipping through a KFC and thinking we're doing the right thing and getting two twisters each where now that we actually know a little bit about what we're talking about, twisters are one of the worst things on the KFC menu. Yeah, so is a meatball sub. <laughs> that was my go-to. So instead of getting the unhealthy options, we uh, actually thought we were doing the right thing by going to Subway and uh, going to... KFC and getting the twister but um I guess that's what it kind of I wanted to touch on was you know the knowledge you have now compared to back then on nutrition like oh man there's so much to learn and and like I I'm super lucky that Rhiannon is on the ball with all the nutrition things so in the middle of the season my lunches so she packs my smoke goes with what I need to eat all my snacks, my dinners are sorted. Um, but I mean, I get to learn through that what I should and shouldn't be eating as well. And yeah, back in those days, it was like, let's just slip through the drive-thru and, and we'll grab a, a twister because we're having a wrap, think we're doing the right thing. It's not that bad. Or, you know, I'd, it was five days a week, we are going to Subway thinking we're doing the right thing and having a foot-long meatball sub. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just all about the knowledge and having having people around you that know the right things and I mean I, I'd love to be able to rewind where we are right now with the facilities that you've got and the knowledge that we've got and do it all again but I mean you can't so we just got to do the best we can to educate others I suppose one thing I might touch on now is I was pretty filthy when I got off my first episode telling my story um, I didn't touch on was the time at Essential Energy like how good a time it was with the guys that we worked with like we were working with essentially three or four of our best mates every single day like we had a um, good little young crew there that we used to work with oh mate it was unreal it was like you know we I I take it we took it for granted 100% we did you know we you know made good money we go to work every day, have a good time, you know, the conditions were good, we got paid well, like with all the super, all that stuff was awesome. Um, but, I mean, I look back on it now and that were the golden years, eh? we had so much fun and, and that's one thing with... Um, Thank God for their super, uh, their, um, <laughs> what was it? Um, the sick leave. Oh, the, sick leave, Thank man. God for the sick leave for well, you, you know, eh? Here's one that I got taken to 
Orange to have a meeting with the big dogs because I'd, I'd had a couple of injuries in a row and I'd missed some tape and it was looking like I wasn't going to get through. Like, um, I remember one of the trainers said to me, I was like, I had a lot of doubters, you know, that like was when I finished. I said, I had plenty of people doubting me and they didn't reckon I was going to do it. And I mate stood up and said, yeah, I was one of them. And I was like, yeah, thanks champ. But I remember after one of the injuries, it was, I put in for the leave to go to do safari and Max, our team leader was like, mate, you can't do it. Why don't you just have the year off? And I was like, you, one of the things that I learnt was you've got to take your opportunities when you can get them because you never know what's going to happen. So I was like, mate, I'm going. And he's like, well, how are you going to do it? You've got a broken leg, you've got broken ribs, you, you know, your collarbone's still not healed. I was like, I'll be right. I'm telling you, I'll be fine. And then I ended up having to go to Orange to have a meeting with the two area managers and they were like, we don't think this is a good idea. You should not be doing this. And I was like, well, mate, I'm going no matter what you do. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it was, it was cool times, but mate, I, we made lifelong friends and we had some fun times at TAFE and, um, that's one thing I look back on my career is I've been able to compete with the top guys at the top level for a long time and to be able to, you know, do my apprenticeship, have a full-time job and basically live two lives, which has been pretty cool. Yeah. And so moving on from Essential, you obviously took a redundancy and went and worked for your parents. How's yeah. that been going? It was always going to happen at some point. Um, you know, like, you know, dad's not going to be able to be the man forever, you know, like doing what he does at work. And it kind of, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it worked out perfect because, um, you know, I got my paid redundancy and um, we got married straight after that, Rihanna and I, and then, you know, made bought an investment property from there. And then I see one of my best mates, or three of my best mates get sacked from having a beer, you know. So um, it was crazy. It turned out the best decision that I've made. But, you know, it was hard to watch you guys go through it um, because there's no doubt in the world that I would have been there with you. And <laughs> I definitely would have had a beer with the boys and I definitely would have got sacked too. So, um, I mean, it's been tough making that transition to having your own business and and, you know, like... RDOs were the best. Like we used to do a seventy-two hour fortnight, so we'd do Monday to Friday, and then have the following Monday off, and do Tuesday to Friday. It was the hours were good, and you know that paycheck was there every week, and you walk out of the joint, don't care. But um, you know, now you're looking back on it now. It was a good part of our life, and I'm happy that I made the decision I did. I mean, the first five years of my like time, like I loved it. Like you couldn't fold it. Like, and then I guess you left not long after that, and then. I gradually grew, like, fell out of love with it a little bit. Like, I mean, if I didn't get the sack, I'd still be there tomorrow probably, but um, I would hate every second of it. My life wouldn't be anything like it is now where I love getting up and I love going to work. So, I mean, it all works out. Like, Oh, man, it ha everything happens for a reason. And I remember saying that to you when it happened. I was like, well, you know, I don't know what, what you're going to do, but, um, you know, that it was sort of meant to happen. And there's a few things, like, even with my career that I look back on that, it's like, well, I guess that was meant to happen, you know, otherwise, you know. Like, even with the injury this year with my ribs, it was like, well, it's not ideal, but I'm still going to get to race. And, um, you know, that, that was meant to happen for some sort of reason, I suppose. Yeah, 100%. Like, everything that I, like, some people come to me and tell me something now, and I was like, yeah, it seems like a big thing at the moment, but, like, in, you know, six months, 12 months, you look back and it won't even matter or it'll be a blessing that it did happen. Like, yeah. sometimes it is hard to see, but... Um, it definitely is. And I remember like when I was like, obviously got the sack, always had the dream of starting up a gym. 
and you're one of the first people who was like all in like yeah. you were like supported me very from the very beginning at LTF which I'm uh, I guess very thankful for but like it's obviously a pleasure to train someone that's got goals like you do as well oh mate yeah it's been it's been awesome it's um I don't know how I would go back to being able to go to the gym and and try and train on my own I did a lot of it when I was younger but just having the guidance of showing up to the gym and and just getting told what to do and all I know is I've just got to give it 100% and I mean every single session you can't give 110% you're not going to be at your best but I know that I go there I know what program we're doing you tell us what to do and we have a crack that's that's the best part yeah one little story I've got here and I probably you would definitely remember it but it was from the um when I very first started with box jumping um I can't even remember we just had a little workout going might have been 10 10 minute AMRAP for instance um and it was a box jump uh, flipped on its end, so 30-inch box jump on the wooden boxes. And, yeah, obviously fatigued, missed the box jump, and just straight on the shin, there's oh. blood, and uh, it was a good little uh, good little scar. I think you still got it. You showed me yeah, the other 100%. day. Yeah, it's still there. Anyways, I flipped the box down and, like, threw him a tissue and said, let's clean it up and then let's keep rolling. And then you just flipped the box straight back up and said, only pussies quit and just kept box jumping your way through it. <laughs> And I've done that a few times. It's not a very uh, pleasant experience. Nah, I mean, and that's what you got to do, eh? That's what I think about training in the gym is um, you got to try and give it your all. It's like when you're racing or when you're in competition or anything. It's like if you train shit, you're going to ride shit or whatever, you know. you got to put the work in and a little bit of pain like that doesn't hurt anyone. So I mean, it's, I guess, similar for you is like falling off a motorbike and you got to get back on it and finish the... Uh finish the motor yeah exactly yeah i mean i've had that plenty of times before too so um the one thing that my old man always said to me when i was younger is you know you you cannot give up and do not be one of those kids that crashes and i walk out there and there's nothing wrong with you you stop a race and you get up and you walk off like and he drummed that into me as a kid and even to the point i mean i crashed in orange one time at a stadium cross and broke my wrist and dad was running the show and, and i remember getting up and just running over to the side saying don't stop the race you know i've only got a broken wrist i'll be sweet walked over to the ambos because i was like you know they breed these kids they're pussies you know they crash and they get a little scratch and they stop the race and then the next five minutes later they get up and walk away so you know you sort of got to bread a little bit tough i suppose but um yeah it's just the way it is that's the way i was brought up and like I know now, like some of the guys like get inspired by your, I guess, um, efforts and I guess toughness in the gym that you, like, I mean, you don't train as often as all the other guys. Like you're a little bit more respectful as your body. You do riding and things as well on the side, but these guys train at least five, possibly six times a week. Um, and Jake might have a couple of weeks off away racing and things and comes back. And um, you're always leading the way in the gym and they're always trying to keep up. Yeah, they're like, how does this guy do it? He doesn't train near as often as what we do. But um, like, it just shows that mental toughness and I guess that do anything to win kind of oh, attitude, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for sure. And it's more, it's... it's like, like you're definitely not fitter than what them guys are or not much. Like you'd be similar. Yeah. It's just that you've got that, I guess, little bit extra push. You or can that. always push yourself to another limit and that's where... Like, I think the mental game with a lot of this stuff is is a big one that people don't... You know, you see people that throw in the town and they're not super wrecked or it's like, oh, there's a bit of pain there, I'm going to stop or whatever. It's it's a mindset thing and it's a mindset thing with everything. With all my injuries, it's, um, you know, with your racing, with your training, it's all 
you can always push yourself to that limit and I kind of enjoy pushing the limits and I love like I hate getting beat too like especially even in the gym you know if we're doing you know you know wall balls like doing something for numbers or for time it's like well what's the time I've got to beat because I'll do what I've got to do to beat that time and if I get beat then I'm filthy but you got to know that you put the best effort in and um, that's like you know that's I've been asked before what sort of advice like do you have advice for kids or whatever and it's like you need to make the most of every opportunity you get whether it's in the gym whether it's a race or whatever it's like you've got the opportunity to give it your all then go for it yeah 100% 100% so I mean from the very beginning of LTF like the Logan Thorpe who showed up coaching on uh, on the first session compared to now what's your biggest difference that you're noticing me as a coach compared to back then I, I like I was only thinking about this the other day remember your very first session that we did at the pool boot so camp yeah it was a boot camp and it was I think it might have been like a Saturday morning or something and I was like, I don't even want to be training today, but I thought it's, you know, Logue's first day, I'll go and have a crack. I live across the road, obviously, so I had no excuse not to go. And uh, I remember you being super nervous and had the little station set up <laughs> and everyone standing around talking and it was like time to go, but you didn't know whether to stand for authority. <laughs> and I mean, it's been a pretty cool move. Like, I, I'm super proud of what you've achieved in... Like what do you mean? What's it been? Two years? This is uh, just coming on year three now. All Christmas time will be three years. Three years. So, from where you started back then to to where we are now, um, I mean, uncomparable, eh? It is. Like I mean, just I look I mean, back at some of the things we were doing back then. It's like, why was I doing that? But it's all part of the journey, you know. Oh, and it's all like I mean, there's so much to learn in the fitness game from me on the outside looking in and and learning the way that you want to train and the way that you want to work with your clients and and the whole structure of your gym and everything like that like it's um you've got to be pretty proud of what you've achieved in three years like i mean you look at any startup business and if they can get themselves to a point where you're at within three years they have to be super happy you know to build from working you know doing group sessions down the pool to building a little shed at the back of your parents' house that was, what was it, six by six or something? Yes, 10 by six. 10 by six. And it was, we used to think that was cool. You know, the setup was sweet and then we filled the awning in and then more guys are coming on and then you go down to your new spot and it's like, look at all this room. And And then then open the back of that up. Open the back of that up. And then it's nearly to the point now where you're like, well, I want something bigger again, you know, like, and the people that are jumping on board to just to train, you know, like one of the things that I've had is I've always had a goal in mind like racing dirt bikes so the reason why i trained all of my life is so that i could be the best i can to ride a dirt bike but like even now it's changing that it's more about being healthy and the mindset and um you know doing what you got to do to prolong your life basically and then you're providing a platform for people to go and have a good time interact with other people training cost effective um yeah, it's pretty cool. Australia's got the third highest obesity rate. Like, it's the third most obese country in the world. So, like, it's like, um, like you want to make an impact. That's like, it's always, I'm like sitting there thinking, how can I have more impact? But, like, I mean, you can only do so much to a certain extent. But, like, I mean, yeah. I'm going to work my ass off to have more impact. There's no doubt about that. Well, you've got to have clients that want to do it for a start right and everyone that shows up there has got the intent that they want to lose weight or they want to better themselves or they've got goals in mind whether they want to be able to hit pbs with you know lifting weights or 
run a certain distance in certain times and that kind of thing. But, I mean, it's so cool that a little town like ours has got a facility where you can go and do that kind of training and work towards your goals and get the support that you need, you know, with nutrition and training programs and the amount of times you get to train. Like you mentioned how I only get to train three or four times a week in the gym. I mean, I'd love to be able to do five days a week. That'd be oh, that'd be the dream, but it's just not possible. Um, so you got to make do with what you can. And I mean, sometimes it's not about doing six days a week. If you if you do three days a week, and you give the best you can for three days a week, it's better than nothing. That's it. You can only do what you can do, but consistency is the key. Yeah, for sure. And and nutrition is massive. The more that you learn about nutrition and and it's like it's it's probably more than doing the work in the gym. Oh, hundred percent. Like I'm constantly saying in the gym, you can't out train a bad diet. Like Hell you can come no. train with me six days a week. If you're gonna eat Yeah. Um and like it's not like it's sometimes just poor education. Like people think they're trying to do the right thing, but in turn they're not. Like I quite often think like where would I be in my training if I could have went and done something like I'm doing now when I was 18 like I just used to go to the gym and just punch out bench presses and I don't know some rows or machine shoulder presses or something like if I was actually had some sort of program that I was following with certain reps and um I guess tempos and uh, and all of this kind of thing like what what would I be able to lift now where would my fitness be how would I be able to move like movement just so overlooked like but when you're 16 you don't care about how well you can move you just care about how much you can bench but when you get to like who cares how much you can bench even the even the um like my first train when I was with Yamaha they employed Tim Cole as a trainer through Stephen Gore what's Timmy doing now I'm not too sure I haven't spoke to him for a while but um but yeah, so my first program and the and the first thing that I dropped off that program was all the stretching and the movement. I was like, man, I don't need to do that shit. Like, I'll do the training, but I'm... Yeah, and it's just all of that sort of stuff, you know, and the nutrition side of things and just where it's come from. Like, I used to jump on the things. Like, I got told that chocolate milk was as good as any for recovery. So I'd get to think a few years back and I was like, give me that two litre of chocolate milk because I love that stuff, you know, and looking at it now, it's like, I mean, you should not be drinking that. Nah. So, like, it's... So much false, not false, I guess, but so much like stuff that can be so misleading. I can't remember what it was the other day though, but I was like looking at some packet or something somewhere and had a four star health rating, and then I flicked over the back and I was like, How is this thing four star health rating? Like, it's just like the system just needs some work, and I mean, it's I guess I can only do so much, like, there's still all that stuff out there, but like, I'm still not having the impact I want to have. The other thing that gets people is. Like, if you're eating the right food, you nearly almost cannot possibly eat what you should be for the day. Like, so the calories that, you know, that I should be intaking even when I'm not in full training, I find it hard to hit my calories for the day. And if if you're eating the right foods, and it's all education, man, it's so hard. Like, and even, even now, like, the biggest thing that I notice now with nutrition is, you know, you have a packet of chips or something like that, and you know it's bad, but... Like, back in the day, you think, you know, like, we used to go and have a twister and say, yeah, well, you know, I have a twister every now and then, it's not so bad, you know, it's better than having a Big Mac or something, but I might as well have went and had a Big Mac, because I like them better. Yeah, it's like 300 calories can be, like, you can eat a lot of chicken and a lot of veggies for 300 calories, or you can have, like, three pieces of fruit, or you can have some Vita wheat with cheese and tomato, or you can have, like, 
an ice cream that's 300 calories or and it's like what's going to keep you fuller for longer you oh, know yeah. like what's going to give you the most energy out of them three things definitely not the vital weights definitely not the fruit you know you're yeah. going to eat them and be half an hour later looking for something else like yeah. i mean i'm not saying chicken and veggies are the only thing you can eat either no. but that was just an example for sure man processed foods are, are a big one so it's um it's hard eh? but it's all about just learning and it's trial and error but i mean even when i jumped into like the i guess this industry like i had no idea about nutrition like and it's all self like and i'd lost weight but like not through the route like through the way that you should do it like if i would know now what i knew back then like i'd love to know the body and what not you could have oh for sure let's jump ahead gonna be a dad yeah it's pretty exciting man it's um it's like i feel like I'm ready to be a dad, I suppose. Um, it's been a life-changing experience already, and I don't even have a kid. Can't um, say I was ever had that feeling that I was ready, and even with well, two, I mean, I'm still not ready. <laughs> no, I, mean, you, I don't think you're ever ready, but um, it's a pretty exciting time, and it's um, you know it's the next chapter of my life, I guess. Um, pretty pumped that. Yeah, it's cool. Like I mean, there's nothing cooler than watching your own kids, like like eventually roll over and then pulling themselves up onto things and then learning to walk and now like Eli's flying around the house on his bike and um and whatnot so just the miracle of it all you know we've like it's been a process for us to be able to be pregnant I guess and all that sort of stuff so it's um yeah it's pretty insane what a woman's body is capable of um and the way it all works you know we get to have the fun and sit back and watch it all happen so <laughs> i know yeah, uh, yeah. even I even that's not as fun as what you think sometimes you know like i um always say that if it was us males having the kids then there wouldn't be um near the amount of kids we're not near tough enough to well, go through that I'm, experience I haven't been in that birth, and, birth and room yet but i i think uh, from all reports it's um yeah it's an experience I think experience is an understatement <laughs> Let's jump into the, um, let's wrap it up. Let's jump yep. into the LTS five questions. I've been going a bit over an hour. Tell me something about you that no one would know or Nelly, no one would know. Well, I mean, there's probably 12, 15 guys at Essential Energy that would know. This is, I've thought about this one, that I'm pretty shit scared of heights. Like I suck at heights and we used to climb power poles for a living and be in um, EWPs and all that kind of stuff. But um, I remember my first time at TAFE and we had to climb the ladder to do a rescue and I got to the top of the ladder which was what, maybe five metres and went to look over the edge of the ladder to knock old mate off and I went what am I doing <laughs> yeah it was yeah. something different wasn't it being on top of them things I guess not that we did as much as what they would have back in the day but I'm certainly not disappointed that I'm not throwing on my harness and climbing up power poles every single day oh definitely not mate not, not, uh, not anymore it was fun while it was there but those days are done Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, actually, it's fairly recent, but um, Rhiannon and I have been talking about it, and it's um, never assume. So she got told by a teacher of hers in at Tate is to, to never assume. So never assume you know, that someone's like they are or never assume that things are going to work out like they are. And in a roundabout way, she always reminds me of that, you know, like you go, you know, that bloke's a dickhead or, you know, that looks shit or whatever, whereas she's like, well, you can never assume. And it's it applies to everything in life, eh? You never assume something until you've actually experienced it or done it or get to know the person or whatever. So I think at the moment that's probably one of the best bits of advice. Another one, it's kind of a quote, but... 
Um, so Theo Holman was a family friend of ours, one of my good mates, this old man that passed away, and he always used to say that um, you can have who you want on, but don't have yourself on. So that, I mean, that's I remember him saying that to me when I was young, and he was you know, a big supporter of mine. So it's it's not a bad one to go by. Yeah, like it, like it. Is there anything that's happened to you that you thought would be the worst thing in your life, but's turned out to be a blessing? Another recent one is um, with Rhiannon and I going through the whole pregnancy thing. So we had um, what they call a blighted ovum. Um, so we went in for our 10-week scan and doing the ultrasound, and I'm thinking, doesn't look like there's anything in there, which there isn't. So that's basically you've got the sack with no, no baby in there and then had to go and have the DNC, so surgery, to, to clean it all out. And then the process we went through from then to being out of fall pregnant was quite tough. But, I mean, I don't know whether it's a blessing or not, but I feel like together, her and I are more ready to be parents. We've grown together as a couple. Um, I think it's sort of just made us stronger. So looking back on that experience for the last 12 months and sort of what we went through, I know a lot of people go through that kind of thing to have kids and, um, and go through a lot of worse things in their life. But at the moment for us, and where we're at in our relationship and how, you know, it sort of brought us together stronger and, and all that kind of thing. It's, um, it's been quite cool. And now that we're actually having a baby, that's, um, it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, love it. I guess it's, um, it's something that a lot of people don't really understand as well, like how much trouble that people can have in the process of, um, I guess, having children and with you and Rhiannon also being so, like, very fit and healthy. Yeah. Like, I mean... Um, would have definitely been somewhat of a surprise. Oh, definitely. And like it happened so quick for us the first, when we actually decided and then to go through that process and then the process we went through to actually fall pregnant again and the things you learn along the way and just that, I mean, what we go through, what we went through together and what Rhiannon went through and the sacrifices she made to make it happen. I mean, it was kind of, kind of a blessing that, you know, we were healthier, you know, better people when we had fallen pregnant that it should set us up to be a bit better as parents I hope 100% love it where do you want to be in five years um I just want to have a happy healthy family I guess um one thing that I want to be is content with my career if my if my racing career is finished in five years which more than likely it'll get to that point especially with having family and that kind of thing that I want to be able to look back on and be happy with with my career and be content with what I've done um, which I'm getting to that point now, but I just hope that in that five years that I've got a Fink title and I've got that nobody check sitting on my wall in my shed and, and that I've got a happy and healthy family and then work on business too, you know, like Todd and I are pretty much, I mean, we're very lucky that my parents were in business together and at some point, you know, they've got a caravan and that now they're going to be, you know, sort of cruising around Australia hopefully and we'll be taken over, so work on on running that business and um i've actually got a sticker business on the side as well so hopefully have those running well and just have a happy healthy family yeah perfect perfect i did have sort of that written down to go into but sort of like um went into the racing a little bit more than i thought we probably would so we'll save that for another one like a bit of a business one later on for sure favorite quote um when i was younger <clears throat> when I was training like by myself I used to run off the old you only get out what you put in quote so um, and it kind of still works and if you don't put the work in you're not going to get the results to a certain extent 
I mean, talent can only get you so far and, and it's in everything in life. You only really can get out of what you put in. So, I mean, you put the hard work in then generally you're gonna get the result. Uh, and then another quote that I like, that it's sort of been around for a while, I guess, is piss poor preparation leads to piss poor performance. Um, and that's another one, you know, where if you don't prepare properly, then you know, more than likely it's not going to work out the way you want. Yeah, so. that can be transferred into anything. Like I'm forever under my clients about preparing food. Like if it's not prepared, then you're more inclined to like make poor decisions. But then that can also lead to like racing and things like that. Like if you're oh. not, um, yeah, it's prepared. all about the prep, mate. If you prep properly, and then you know put the work in, it'll happen. Anything you want to add? Any shout outs? No, not really. I don't think. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being a good coach. Being a part of my program. Um, Let's get pretty... that win. That's what's big on my list as well. So oh, that's yeah. uh, 2020. Let's I mean, we'll put the work in and we're going to start working from now pretty much to make it happen. So Yeah, yeah. We'll but do everything that in, in our power that we can and then... Um, have some fun doing it, mate. That's what it's all about. Hey, you got to be... Gratitude's one of the biggest things that I've learned from, especially from Rian and drums into me a fair bit. And... Uh, is man, you gotta be grateful for what you got. And yeah, it's been game changing for me too. Like I've got this daily diary that I fill out. Like it's more just like my work thing, but at this each morning and each night, it's like three things you're grateful for. It can change your whole mindset when you actually think about it. Like we take the smallest things for granted, but they're actually the most important. Like it's easy oh. to get up and brush your family and go straight out and jump on the computer or something for me, but then that's kind of the most important. Um, parts I guess of your day like not this I mean this work stuff's important but nowhere yeah. near as important as what's sitting inside oh I mean everyone has stresses in their life and, and a lot of things that don't go their way but I mean it's you've got to try and look back on your what you got you know like where you're at in your life and, and have the gratitude and realise that it's not so bad so yeah it's all good let's wrap it up thanks mate thanks for having me thanks for listening later I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more. I'm sick of us not doing this right, that's why I think I'm cutting you from my life. No more. Wasted energy spending a pace for every hour I wait. I need an escape to center me. And I don't mean to make a rush for the door, but time's a currency, I'm currently poor. I'll be leaving it soon, I don't mean to be rude, but this scene ain't for me, like your mom's seeing your nudes. I got places. Thanks for listening, crew. If you liked it, could you share it on your Instagram story? Uh, This is only new, this podcast. I'd love to try and spread the message. Um, If you also liked it, could you jump on and leave a review, preferably five star. Until next time, thanks for listening.